and welcome. I want to add my word of welcome to Sandy's and uh, whoever else has been saying welcome to you today. Uh, great to be here. Great to be, uh, as Sandy has said, just a family together in, in, in our church here and worshipping God and, and sharing our commonality uh, that we have in Christ. So good to be here. This week, um, our family, we watched the movie The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe on Tuesday night. C.S. Lewis is probably most famous um, stories. And, and in, in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, as Aslan, the reality of Aslan be, becomes known and moves across the land and that it changes, flowers and things pop out, the whole landscape begins to change. And I, I'm thinking freeways a little bit like Narnia at the moment. Uh, things are changing, there's stuff going up on the walls around the place as the reality of Christmas draws closer. We've got all kinds of things popping up and down all over the place and uh, I like it. Uh, helps us celebrate and remember how God initiated uh, his grace and his love to us. And for someone like me who grew up in a in a home with very few uh, fond Christmas memories, uh, seeing it like this is something that I love. If I had to budget, this place would be like Griswolds. There'd be stuff everywhere and there'd be more reminders of God's grace to us in this Advent season as we approach uh, Christmas. And I'm looking forward to the family service uh, and, and, and what's going to happen there. Uh, side note, um, the, the Crafties. The Crafties had uh, their breakup on Thursday, and it was cool. I gate-crashed it and ate all their awesome food. But Joan had this, this crazy game that I'm, I'm in negotiations with Sandy to try and force into our family service somehow. So um, you need to come and see whether I win that... Um, that that conversation or not or or whether we don't get it done but now that i've put all this public pressure on it you never know what i what i can hey let's let's pray i don't know what's going on and get into micah uh loving father as we approach christmas and as we approach your word here to us in micah would our hearts be reminded of your grace to us and would that grace shape our lives in such profound ways that that we uh, embody your heart in our actions, uh, that we would be struck by your fearsome goodness to us, by your by your actions of grace towards us. Our lives would be so profoundly shaped that our hearts would be broken for what breaks yours. And would that transform our motives as we as we look into your word? And we're thankful that we can pray to you like this because of our standing. In Jesus, whose life and death and resurrection are applied to us by faith through your spirit and it makes us your children. Last week, uh, Sandy and I, uh, on Saturday, or last weekend, Saturday to be precise, we celebrated uh, 23 years of marriage. And we had, had had a busy week. All kinds of the usual crazy, uh, all kinds of the usual distractions that's very common in most marriages, in, in most relationships and families. We hadn't really had the time to say, hey, what are we doing this weekend? We, we kind of rushed past each other during the week and maybe thought about it here and there, but no solid conversation. And it would have been pretty easy, I think, for us just to uh, uh, sit at home and, and really not do too much. Maybe uh, exchange some cards that we brought at Woolies the night before and, and, and maybe watch some dumb Netflix chick flick or something like that. 
uh, ten, ten, tends to be chicks always win the, the conversation on on milestone events. But anyway, I mean, it's the twenty third anniversary. It's it's not like it's a special one or, or some kind of grand milestone. Just another year down, so to speak. Uh, just another year together. And we could take the whole thing for granted or we could be indifferent to it or, or we could just kind of keep on rolling. I mean, after 23 years, honestly, what new delight or what new surprise could there be in each other? Perhaps, you know, maybe maybe we could even entertain the idea of of just going and doing our own things on our anniversary. Wouldn't that be permissive? Wouldn't that be wonderful? I mean, how many conversations can you have with the same person after 23 years? And then at the last minute, like literally at the last minute on Friday, I, um, I cashed in a gift voucher uh, that some people had, had given to us. And, uh, and, and we had a lunch. It was for a lunch at the Woodman Estate. I don't know, I'm kind of, that's how, that's how kind of romantic I am. I'm, I'm just, cashing stuff in here and there that other people have given me if you want an interesting story ask ask sandy about at my wedding proposal and then you'll see where i set the bar and um and then and then and then this mate it's all up i set the bar down here and when I'm doing, like, when I used to talk to young adults back in Wodonga and they'd come, oh, I want to propose to this person. You know, I'm thinking about buying a unicorn and dropping it out of a balloon over an ocean. I'm like, dude, where do you go after that? Set it down there. Anyway, that's for free. Mm. Back to, back to this. I haven't had much sleep. Needless to say, it was nice to go somewhere intentional and make much of each other by by being the only priority in that space. Like Saturday morning came around and we just switched off for a couple of hours and made it about us, made it about our relationship, intentionally looking across the table at each other after taking what I thought was a strange amount of photos of our food. And then think, there is my standard of beauty. There is my relational priority. And we have 23 years of story. And the more I've come to be familiar with her story, the more I delight in in, in being a part of it. I'm not sure if Sandy thinks the same. (laughs) But it was crucial to stop and think about that story and, and how we'd grown together. We didn't actually say too much to each other. There's no moving speech. There was no uh, gushing over-the-top posts on Facebook. I think we put some photos on at the end of the day, and then it just becomes a competition between us to see who gets the most likes. But we just spent... I think I won. Um, we just spent some time together enjoying being with each other. A story woven out of a promise that we both said yes to 23 years ago was strengthened, was was deepened, was renewed, was affirmed, just by intentionally remembering, spending a little bit of time remembering how to, how we got to where we are. We didn't merely just say, oh yeah, on this day we got married, isn't it wonderful? We spent some time participating in it. We spent some time to rekindle the promise. And you know what? 
that stops us from becoming bored or tired with each other. Or maybe even to find some other interest or some other standard of beauty or some other relational priority or a better promise somewhere else. One of the strongest and most compelling motivational tools is this practice of remembrance. While we have wedding anniversaries, the ritual of calling to mind past events, whether they're good or whether they're bad, and retelling the story of them and and what flows out of that. It's why we get 90,000 people to gather at the MCG on Anzac Day to watch, let's face it, probably two of the most hated clubs in the AFL. There's a more powerful atmosphere on that day than just a game of footy. The imagery of fallen soldiers, the ode, the last post. It's more than just a date. It's more than just an event. It's, it's more than a game, as they would say. It's a virtual participating in, 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 in a historic story. Lest we forget. Lest we grow bored of it. Lest we grow tired of it. Of that story. It's why in this Advent season we call more intentionally into our stories the story of Christmas, the story of how God initiated a rescue, moved towards us, broke into our stories uh, of dissatisfying desires, of relational dysfunction, to give us both a promise and experience of grace that we should continually remember with fearsome wonder. That's why we stop at Christmas. To remember these things. In Micah 6, God is stopping. And he is calling out what he sees as relational issues that have developed between him and his covenant people. He's outing them as a relational partner whose way of life has been to grow weary of the relationship Bored and indifferent to God. They have failed to keep him as the standard of beauty and relational priority at the center of all that they do. They have not only failed to keep the covenantal promises that they said yes to between them and God, but but they have begun to despise these promises. They have begun to abuse these these promises. And and they have mistrusted them. And they've they've run off and and they've sought other promises, other places, other experiences in, in other places. And rather than the fruits of this relationship being justice and kindness and mercy and blessing to anyone who encounters this relationship, this family, chapters 1, 2 and 3 reveal that Israel have zero regard in their heart for the poor and the weak. And they use whatever amount of power they have to devour what they can, to get what they can. At the bottom of all this abuse and all this injustice is a broken relationship with God. Indeed, an abandonment of the relationship with their God who has simply become a means to an end. They just kind of keep God around now to fulfill their desires. They relate to him with insincere sacrifice. It's it's energetic, it's big, but it's insincere. I'm pretty confident that if I lashed out, spent a heap of money, made some grand speech, uh, pushed some extravagant gift across the table, and then once all that song and dance and all that performance was over, I just kind of buried myself 
in my iPhone, I pulled out my laptop perhaps and went back to my work or, or went out to the lake that's at the Woodman there, Sandy would have thrown the food at me. She would have tossed that gift into the lake where I'm now fishing and grabbed me by the shirt and said, hey, something is wrong here. I don't just want your token gifts. You're pushing stuff across the table to me. I want you. I want a relationship. We need to talk or these things cooked. And that is what God is now doing. But without the throwing of food and the toys out of the cot. After centuries of relational breakdown, God is now grabbing Israel by the shirt. And he is saying to them, we, we need to talk. But this is no casual conversation. It's formal. It's an end of the road kind of conversation. The setting of this conversation is, is kind of like the setting of a courtroom. And it serves as a last stop mediation, if you like. Family court mediation, if you like. And God graciously moves towards his wayward people and he invites them to hear. That is to consider his case. His visceral plea is for acknowledgement of the breakdown and to find reason why they are so estranged. Creation is called in to be the jury, to hear, to listen to God's people come and give a legitimate reason for their rebellious behavior. In Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 51, we see that the mountains are actually the witness to God's original uh, action of calling Israel into covenant, bringing Israel into relationship with him. Normally under Deuteronomic, Deuteronomic or Levitical law, it would be the priests who come, the judges and those who are in office. They would hear and adjudicate such charges, but shockingly, they are the ones on trial. So God has called the silent witness to the original agreement, the silent witnesses of creation that have, that have looked uh, over this relationship. In an alarming turn of events, the jury is compromised uh, of the places where Israel committed their crimes, the places where Israel went and committed their sins of idolatry. There's a future echo of this, if you like, uh, in Luke 19.40, where the people are hailing Jesus as the Messiah, as God's restore, uh, promised restoring king, the bringer of peace, the establisher of relationships with God again. When the re religious leaders and the priests and the judges and those who are in office try to silence people from saying, here is God's peace, here is God's truth, Jesus condemns them saying, I tell you, if these were silent, then the very stones would cry out. From the creation of the world to the creation of Israel to the coming of Jesus, God has always been public about his desire to be in right relationship with humanity. One that leads to his glory, one that leads to our deep joy. And if we silence that desire of God's. If we distort or twist it, or if we misrepresent this truth, then creation itself will stand up and bear witness to it. The courtroom is packed. The trial is about to start when all of a sudden this strange twist takes place. Rather than Israel, the people of God, 
uh, being in the witness stand to give evidence, God steps in to be cross-examined by the defendants to see if there is any case against him. Has God... Has God been an unjust God in this relationship with them? Has he been indifferent to their needs? Has he left them to organize themselves somehow as best they can? Has he been some strange, aloof mystery that you just kind of have to take your best shot at trying to understand, trying to work out how you you please this God? Has he wearied them? How has he wearied them? How has he burdened them? What has he done to make them so tired of him and to say, you know, please leave us alone. We just want to go fishing. Has he asked too much, been too demanding? God seems to be searching his own heart for failure. Could he be the one responsible for this relationship breakdown? Answer me, is God's strong plea as he stands in the witness stand? The courtroom waits with bated breath and the silence is as painful as it is condemning. There is nothing to say. Israel is as stubborn as they are proud. There's no movement of, no, God, God, you are good. We, we, we are the problem. But God moves freely around this courtroom from prosecutor to defendant to to, to now to mediator. The courtroom will not hear the charges against Israel. They're already well known. They've piled up in the first three chapters. What the court will now hear is the reason the relationship can be saved, can emerge out of this time of upcoming abandonment, this time of exile. I will show you, God is saying, a love that is far more stubborn, far more resilient, far more efficacious than your rebellious, stubborn, stiff hearts. I will remind you of my hesed, my unrelenting grace of unconditional, unmerited, enduring love. I will remind you of how I make good my deep promises to you. Call to mind, Israel. Remember how it was that we began. Uh, Think back to Deuteronomy 7, 7, where we find the Lord did not set his affections on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. There's nothing extraordinarily compelling about Israel, this motley group of people. But it was because the Lord loved you. And kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you up uh, out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of the Pharaoh in Egypt. God's love is not contingent on your greatness, on your goodness, on your ability to merit his movement towards you, but on his greatness, on his goodness, on his capacity to move towards you. Remember how that love looks, Israel. Remember how that love felt, Israel. Remember how his acts of grace, how through these acts of grace, he he brought us up out of the land of slavery. You were enslaved. You were oppressed. You were helpless. And I moved towards you. I rescued you. I redeemed you. I brought you up out of the land of Israel. And then remember how I provided 
uh, you with capable leaders who would lead you through the wilderness. Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Remember how I, I reversed the evil plans of Balak, the king of Moab. And, and, and Balaam, uh, he, he, Balak was going to send him there to pronounce a curse on you. But I got Balaam to reverse that curse and turn it into a blessing. I used a donkey to do it. Remember how I did that to you. Remember how I got you across the Jordan River. How as you went into the promised land, you dipped a single toe into the river and the waters stood up. And they were held back. It's flooding power. And you walked across into the promised land. Remember these things. The Lord wants his people to concentrate on his saving acts because he is aware that the only adequate motivation for renewed relationship between them, between him and them, is gratitude for all that he has done for them. God redirects them, not to their sins now. They are known, they are well known, but now to his grace. Exile will be a place to seek God's grace. This is my story. It's a story of promised faithfulness to be your God. Constantly in your unfaithfulness to be faithful, to be your God. A God who rescues, a God who redeems, a God who protects, a God who delivers. You will face judgment, my judgment, but not in a way that ends you but in a way that redirects you. God's acts of salvation should have become and should always be the living possession of his people in each generation. And as they remember, as they remember the story of God, they begin to know, they begin to understand. uh, and, And that creates delight, a standard of beauty. This kind of intentional taking this kind of intentional time to remember and to know God will always bring about renewal to a personal relationship with him. Will always bring about a renewal of faith. Will always bring about a renewal of hope. Will always bring about um, a a relationship and, and, and an action of love. God may at times confront us in an atmosphere of a courtroom. But he deals with us from a heart of love. Israel is condemned. They are guilty. They have no basis for complaining. Their only refuge, their only hope now is remembering his grace. It's kind of like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world to die for those. He didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's how God moves towards us. We are condemned. That's the reality. God doesn't move toward us now to just crush us with that, but rather to bring a way to relieve us of that. Remembering who God is, how he has dealt with us, is what reshapes who we are. We become, once again, not bored with God if we've grown bored, not burdened with coming to church. And delighting in his presence. He is someone who now is for us a deep well of kindness. A deep well of mercy and justice. 
Because that is how he has been toward us. And we are created to worship God on this basis and to walk with him through our lives. And the evidence that we are drinking from this well of, of God's goodness uh, and, and, and that we are worshipping and delighting in his character is that our lives are, are shaped by that experience of God's grace to us. We're constantly remembering, constantly renewing in our lives the experience of how God has been to us. There's a wonderful picture of this in John's Gospel. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. Her crime is undeniable. Her guilt is public. Her shame is uh, inescapable. She's a homewrecker. Her approach to relationships eats at the very fabric of what God designed for human flourishing. Worse still, for her, her guilt, her, her guilt is public. Her shame and humiliation is all played out in front of this rabbi called Jesus, who claims to be no less than God himself, God amongst us. God with the power and the authority to deal with this woman's sin. What, what will he do? What will this Jesus do with this destroyer of his good design? Again, the courtroom waits. The priests, the judges, the officials are all hoping for legalism. Social progressive advocates are hoping for permissivism. Each has their own view on justice and Jesus delivers neither. After finding that there's actually no one around he'd condemned, qualified to condemn her, Jesus, the only one who is qualified to condemn her, tells her, your condemnation has been set aside. However, she is to go and sin no more. Well, how is either of these two things possible? How is it that Jesus can just simply say to a guilty person, your sins are forgiven, your condemnation is no longer over you? And then how is it that a sinful person then go and live without sin in their lives anymore? Well, Jesus is looking down the corridor of time to where he will literally take her condemnation upon himself. He shifts her guilt to his cross. There's the event. And she, looking back at the encounter, finds grace there and finds in that grace motivation for deep heart transformation. In that grace, in that movement of Jesus towards her, there, there is the motivation, there is the encounter for deep heart transformation. To continuously delight in those words and that promise. And to have them shape her life. She's not perfect. And she will certainly have her ongoing struggles. But every time she feels alone. And every time she feels like she's gone too far or perhaps slipped up too much. All she has to do is remember that promise. Those words of Jesus to her. His great saving acts of her toward a sinner. Remembering in the Bible is not merely a matter of calling to mind an event, but of actualizing the past into the present, so to speak. 
This kind of remembering brings the event, brings the feelings of it. It's, it's kind of like post-traumatic stress in reverse, if you like. A positive post-traumatic event. So vividly into a person's experience, they take part in them afresh. Remembering kind of equals participation, if you like. It's what Jesus means when he says to us, last week we took communion, and that line where he says, do this in remembrance of me. When you take communion, you're calling to mind the saving acts of grace that Jesus had towards you. Like, you sit there and you think, yeah, I remember when I was just a broken, ugly mess. And before I did anything, before I moved toward God, he moved toward me. It's remembering the grace of God toward us. That song John Newton penned that saved a wretch like me. To remember that. To participate in that. I had a lot more to say, but this morning I thought I'm going to wrap this up here. I know the coffee mug, fridge magnet verse, we still haven't got there yet. I don't know, maybe we'll, we'll get into that next week, perhaps. I can't I always start with a plan of what I'm going to get through in my message, but then, I don't know, time disappears on me. But listen, just as God said to Israel through Micah, you have no basis as my children to live lives that are devoid of justice, that are empty of kindness, that devour and destroy. Because I have told you what is good. You, you know these things. And I have gifted you uh, with, with, with the law. You have these things in your midst. It, this, this, this I have told you brings to mind for them, uh, calls to mind for them things like Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 10. You know, love the Lord with all your, God, with all your heart. But more than just giving you law, more than just giving you a good way to live, I have been these things to you. I didn't just come and make contractual demands. I wrote into our story an experience of what it's like to actually be served by me, to be, to be shaped by a gracious God, to be rescued by a, the God who wrote these laws of how you are to live. They're not designed to oppress you. They are there to bring you close to me. You're not saved by them, but you're saved by a God who wrote them. And they are to be the symptoms of a heart that remembers the God who brought us up out of Israel, the God who saved us from, from Balak, the God who got us across the river. Costly justice and loving kindness and acting mercy mercifully are spiritual symptoms of a heart that has been shaped by an experience of God's saving grace. Our lives as Christians are to be shaped by remembering God's grace to us in Jesus. He is to be our relational priority and our standard of beauty. I forgot about my... In Ephesians 2, Paul says this, uh, Therefore, remember that formerly... You who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, that means you were out of covenantal relationship, you weren't part of the family, called uncircumcised by those who, who themselves were circumcised, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, 
excluded from citizenship with Israel, foreigners to the covenant, foreigners to a good, right relationship with God, of the promises of God, without hope and without God in the world. You, you were rebels without a cause. You had nothing. But now in Christ Jesus, which is verse 13, which isn't up there, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What are we to do? We are to remember this. Remember how it is to, that we got to where we are. One of the keys to the Christian life is not working harder at religious duty and piety as we, as we see what takes place in verses 6 to 7 in Micah 6. You know, what can I do to keep impressing God? How can I maintain a, a buy and ongoing blessings? I'll give rivers of oil. I'll give penitent worship. I'll even sacrifice my, my, I'll just keep up in the ante. Verses 6 and 7 point out that a kind of, that's a, that's a contract relationship with God. And it has no lid. You can never have enough to buy grace. You can only receive it. It can only come from God as a gift. And you can only then be shaped by it. Trying to earn God's favor, trying to earn God's grace through just turning up here or giving or whatever it is you do will eventually Leave you thinking God is unreasonable. But remembering more vividly what God has done for us in Jesus. And not leaving that experience as an event in our past. But walking every day in its ongoing reality. Is the key to keeping ourselves in a place where a relationship with God is healthy. Where we, where we remember the greater promises that are, that are given to us here. There is the more satisfying desire. In this is the enduring hope than anything else we could base our lives on, than anything else we could find outside of a relationship with God. Grace. Grace in Jesus needs to be your anthem of hope. Grace that builds the strength behind a weak and contrite heart that walks humbly with God. That, that verse 8, to walk humbly with God, that word means to be, to be thinking, to be, to be circumspect about it, to be remembering, to have this ongoing action of, of reminding ourselves of who God is towards us. Grace that allows you to be real about your sin. You are a sinner, but in a way that doesn't destroy you, but in a way that frees you. Grace that reminds you that you are, you are literally far more evil than you could ever dare imagine. Like you are too frightened to be real about how wicked and evil we can be at times. But then at the same time, at the same time what this grace does is it reminds you that in Jesus, you are far more loved than you could ever dare dream. That is the gospel. Israel need to get to a point where they drop this self-sufficiency, where they drop this lip service and sing out to God, we need you. We need your grace. We, freeway, us, me, you. We need to get to a point where we say, Jesus, I need you. You make beauty out of ashes. You take broken and jacked up sinners and you turn them into grace 
bought worshippers. And what does that worship look like? Does it look like just sitting in here and singing songs? No, that worship is all of life. That worship looks like doing justice. Doing justice both at a legal level, treating people fairly, you know, at a legal level. It's justice at an ethical level. It looks like loving kindness. Worship is being generous. Worship is forgiving. Worship is being merciful. That is grace. That is the grace shaped worship that God desires. Not just acts of piety. And we get there by remembering the grace-shaped initiation of God to us in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again this morning for this book in Micah. And it keeps unearthing just amazing uh, pictures and images uh, in amongst all of this wreckage and ruin, in amongst all this judgment and condemnation over sin. Out of this emerges this Glorious picture of a God who doesn't just wash away the world in sin, but keeps coming back to it and saying, hey, there's, there's a remedy, there's an answer to this. And it's found in, in saying, we're, we're, we're cooked without you. We need you. Contrite and broken hearts that go, yeah, we're the problem. Where, the, where, where, where sin resides. And we need a, a loving and a good God to come and fix what's wrong here. Our prayer here is that, is that that would be everybody's story. And if you've never uh, opened the page to that story, our prayer is that you would just say to God, hey, I need Jesus in my life. I need to come and say, this is a mess and you have done everything to fix it. Let's begin this story. As we move towards Christmas, would this be more and more, more and more in the air? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we're going to take up our offering.